Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 3, Episode 9. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Steve, ba- welcome. Uh, we're back on the mic together again. Again, a reminder, uh, and it'll be the last reminder to our listeners and viewers on YouTube. We're now weekly, uh, so lots of uh, lots of chit and chatting going on for the rest of uh, Season 3 and beyond. And another, yet another, amazing guest uh, for this episode. We have Rod Sides, Vice Chairman, Deloitte LLP, U.S. Retail and Distribution Sector Leader. And he joins us to add some great color commentary around uh, Deloitte's recent uh, release, his recent uh, research release that forecasted for U.S. holiday retail sales, just blockbuster numbers. Just wow, right? Yeah, like uh, I think 7 to 9% is what they're forecasting for the increase for the holiday, which, you know, actually comes off of a pretty good holiday last year. So, yeah, it looks like consumers, according to their forecast anyway, consumers are going to keep on keep on spending. Well, you're very calm about that number. I mean, if you and I were working in the retail <laughs> business, you know, we'd be happy for 7 to 9%. We'd be like, you know, these are epic numbers. Like, you know, yes. it's funny. We've almost become immune to these big numbers. Like. I think there's some danger of that. Of course, the, as we get into the, some of the questions about how much of this persists, right? You know, pent up demand and the savings rates and all these other kind of macroeconomic factors, um, seem to be pretty strong. But yeah, you know, and, and then you got, as you go on a sector by sector basis, you have some of these, particularly the apparel retailers post, you know, 40% increase, 50% increase. Right. So these are numbers we haven't, we haven't seen before, but you know, it's, it's a lot easier to run a big comp when you run a huge negative comp the year before, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's such a, it's such an interesting, unusual, I dare say unprecedented time. Yes. Not for the first time on this podcast or in many other, uh, that we've said the word unprecedented. All right, well, let's, uh, let's jump into the news of the week. Uh, so what do we, where do we want to start? Stitch Fix. I, I've always found Stitch Fix a very interesting company, whether it's because they're AI driven, uh, right. because their, their management team is super, super savvy. Julie Bornstein, uh, who was there for a while on their board and their COO, I, I've interviewed, you know, super savvy. Uh, their results came out, seemed pretty good, and then uh, it looks like a bit of a strategy pivot. Talk about uh, your observations. Yeah, Stitch Fix, well, they, they, they have been a really interesting business. They were, I think, the first retailer really of any size to be so reliant on data science. I remember seeing some of their original uh, early pitch decks where they would talk about the 150 or 200 data scientists they had and how this was going to be the source of their competitive advantage. For people that aren't familiar, Stitch Fix puts wardrobe suggestions together. Their core model is they send a, a fix to you on a certain schedule, and then you keep what you like and you return the rest, and uh, they learn better uh, to make recommendations. They have found, them, I guess, in the last year or two that they need a little bit more human intervention to, to make the predictions as accurate. So they've shifted a little bit, I guess, from being quite so reliant on pure AI. It was a little bit of um, a mixed report, I guess, because as we were just talking about, we get some of these apparel players that are having 50, 60, 70% increases. And I think they're, they were up 27% or something like that. So Mm. below the trend for apparel, but because their business isn't a physical store business, they didn't lose as much a year ago. So it's a little apples to oranges, I think, in terms of putting them in the general retail category. But but uh, they did swing back to profitability, uh, which was been a question for them. So that was very positive. Um, the thing that's getting a little bit of critique, 
uh, I kind of think it's a little bit much ado about nothing is they're adding the service, uh, I believe they call freestyle, which is essentially regular apparel e-commerce. They're just going to be selling items through, through a website, but the premise is they'll be able to use this, this AI to make recommendations. So it's not a recommendation for a set of things it's recommendation for, for individual mm-hmm. items. So, you know, in theory that expands their addressable market, uh, puts them of course in competition with a million other people, but I guess the secret yeah. sauce is the, is the AI. So, you know, that's another one where just announced no results. We'll, we'll have to see, but I'm, I'm in the scheme of their business. I'm not sure it's a, a big, big expansion. Well, let's talk about uh, a company that I don't think we've talked about in a few hours, Amazon. Um, <laughs> you know, we, by, we were by law, don't we have to talk to Am- by, about Amazon in every episode? <laughs> I, I think by podcast law, business podcast law anyway. But they uh, have, I guess, released or it's leaked or rumored details around what they consider their department store, department store strategy. What, what have you learned? Well, a couple things, and again, you know, reported. I, I, it seems like it was a pretty well sourced article, uh, but if people might remember, uh, there was the story a little while back about they're going to open these department stores, which I think we get into a little bit of the semantics of what's a department store, uh, and a lot of speculation about whether it was going to be more like outlet or, or what have you. But this this report is more that it's going to be pretty apparel centered. Um, much smaller, though, than your typical department store. Um, and the two things that appear to be new are that they're going to emphasize their private brands, which they have quite a lot of, though not certainly as well-known as plenty of other national brands, and that they're yeah. going to, probably no surprise, have a fair amount of technology uh, as part of this, so like with virtual try-on rooms and and these, these sorts of things. So we're getting a little bit more details, whether it turns out to be true or not. I mean, this doesn't make me go, wow. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I wish, right, I wish right. I could get Amazon apparel, but, uh, you know, I wish I could go to a store to get it. I mean, that's not, uh, in and of itself. Yeah. Like, I wish I could, I wish I could have a robot that showed me if it's going to fit well or not said it, it, pretty much. Yeah, it almost feels retail, to me, which is, right? which is a very Amazon thing. You know, if you think about, yeah, yeah. What I believe is they're kind of messing up Whole Foods is they focus on what's in it for them, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, as opposed to really what's going to be an amazing customer experience. And certainly I got to imagine, you know, Amazon's trying to grow its private brand because the margin's better and private brands, I should say, because the margin's better and their returns are probably pretty high. So if you can put in virtual try-ons and you can let people try on stuff you know, physically, then, you know, you're going to lower your return rates and all the rules. So, so, wait, so wait a minute, you're telling me, you're telling me they're going to have a department store where people can actually go try stuff on before they it's buy it? Crazy. It's crazy. Wait, they're, what? <laughs> I know. This will never work. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of spending more time with retailers, American retailers, this out from our friends at CoreSite Research have uh, some great, interesting uh, anti-retail apocalypse store numbers, 4,969 store openings, 53, sorry, 58.3% increase year over year. So yeah, store, there's more stores opening. Like that's a lot of, yeah. that's a big store count. So it does seem to counter. Now we should talk, or I should ask you, I should say qualitatively, you know, a store isn't a store isn't a store. We're not talking, you know, a hundred Nordstrom's opening up. We're talking 
some classifications of stores. Speak to right. your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean the mix. The, well, one is just to just to, uh, and I think I may have mentioned this before. Uh, I love Coresight. Uh Deb's been on the podcast. Uh, they did yeah. predict that twenty five thousand stores would close last year, and it ended up being about eight thousand. So yeah. there's some, something they got missed it by a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there are a lot of stores opening. It's up quite a lot. I think it's maybe a record year in terms of units opening. Uh, not the mm. same as square footage. There's a real tilt, as there has been really for a while, to uh, dollar stores. Uh, dollar General in particular is like 20%. They're opening 1,050 stores or something like that. So they're, they're a big percentage. Uh, but there's a bunch of the other, you know, Family Dollar, Burlington Coat Factory, Ross. So there's a really high concentration of the value-oriented retailers um, you know, we're not seeing department stores open, relatively few uh, kind of mainstream retailers. So that, that's that been a pattern, I think, for five or six years now where the store openings are really heavily on the um, the value side. Yeah. All right. So anyway, this has been a great discussion uh, and a reminder to all of our listeners who have yet to find our YouTube site. Uh, we've got this episode and bonus content up because we we chit and chat for a longer than we put on the podcast for uh, for we kind of tighten that up. But so lots of great bonus content uh, available on our YouTube page. If you're on YouTube right now, you're listening to it. So uh, and if you're on YouTube right now, go to the podcast because then you'll hear our interview with Rod. So Rod Sides is our guest. Uh, and without further ado, let's bring him on and, and talk about uh, U.S. retail and, and some pretty big growth numbers. Well, we're delighted to have Rod Sides from Deloitte join us on the podcast this week, and we're going to jump into some of the forecasts and predictions around the fourth quarter and the holiday season. But before we do that, Rod, would you mind just kind of kicking things off and telling us a bit about yourself, your professional journey, and the work you do at Deloitte? Sure. Glad to do it. Glad to be with you guys today. So I started with the firm many years ago, over 30 years ago. Um, started in the audit practice, moved immediately into consulting as I realized pretty quickly I needed to, to get to something a little more proactive than uh, auditing financial statements. So that was a good journey. I moved immediately into our consumer practice. Over time, I began leading our, our consulting practice, eventually began to lead the practice for the entire firm in retail uh, in the U.S. And most recently, I've taken on a new role where I'm in charge of our insight development team. So any research that we do across all industries, that also is something I spend a lot of time in. But my passion is really retail. My background is really retail, you know, helping folks with strategy all the way through operational execution. So glad to be with you guys today. Well, thanks for joining us. And I imagine we'll, uh, we'll touch on a number of different things. But I thought we could just kick things off by talking about the forecast that Deloitte published. Um, it indicates a very strong holiday season. And could you just describe a little bit about what the forecast is and what's behind that that strong forecast and the confidence you have about the fourth quarter and the holiday? Sure. Every year about this time, we spend time looking at macroeconomic factors to determine what do we think the holidays are going to look like. And we've done this now for over 30 years. What we look at is a couple major factors. Certainly, things like savings rate come into play. We look at unemployment rates. We look a little bit of the impact of inflation, but we take more of a macro view. So this year, our forecast is for holiday sales to be up 7 to 9%. Now, that covers a period from November through January. We keep 
January in the mix because there's a lot of spending that happens after the holidays with gift cards, et cetera. So that was one of the key drivers to look at that. We also look at what's going to happen in e-commerce. I know we're going to touch on that a little bit later. And we expect that to be up year over year, somewhere between 11 and 15%. So it's something we've done for quite some time. Our economics team spent a lot of time you know, looking at the model and adjusting it for things like COVID, et cetera. But we think it's going to be a great holiday season. So can we unpack that just a, a little bit? I mean, I know a lot of, um, a lot of different groups are, are predicting a pretty strong holiday season, and there's lots of speculation around you know, how much of that is government stimulus, how much of that is consumers having a lot of discretionary spending because they're not spending it on going out and on vacation, um, you know, pent-up demand, all those kinds of things. Any, any way to kind of characterize how much of this is you know, kind of of the moment versus a general consumer confidence going forward? Well, I think it's all of the above, if, if we're really honest about it. But I think what we found is what the gov- government stimulus, what that did was put a fair amount of savings in folks' pockets. And to your point, we didn't see travel be as strong as we normally do over the summer, even though you look at availability on you know certain of the airlines, and they certainly looked like they were closing in on you know some capacity numbers or constraints that they had. But there was a lot of savings that is still sitting in the bank accounts of many of the consumers. And so generally, as we go on the holidays, kind of given the fact that folks, a large number of them are vaccinated and starting to get out back in the market, there is a bunch of pent-up demand. And if you look at what's happened in retail for the first six months of the year, we've seen it come roaring back. We've seen the consumer lead the charge back. And I think we're going to continue to see that. As folks are looking to spend more time together, I think we're going to find certain aspects of the holiday spend, which includes travel. I think that's going to go back up. We believe that entertaining inside and outside the home, which was a category that dropped pretty dramatically last year, will come roaring back as well as folks are looking for that social connection. And yeah. they've, they've done that for quite some time. So that's, that's what we think is going to happen over the course of the next, say, 90 days. And what would be some of the indicators to, uh, we'll probably get on into this in a little bit um, more detail, but, um, you know, with supply chain issues, the COVID overhang, I mean, how, what should people be looking at to try to sort out uh, the likelihood that we end up on the high side of the forecast versus perhaps the lower side? Well, I think there's a couple things you can look at. Often we'll go back and look at back to school, back to college. So those are areas where we always do a forecast as well and see how that's tracking. That looks like it was pretty positive as folks were going back to school. So that's one thing that we normally look at. Uh, The other thing that we will look at is how early are people moving in the market? Um, I think with some of the supply chain challenges you referenced, I think we're going to find consumers are now aware that the supply chain is pretty interconnected uh, globally. And so I think we're going to find consumers charging in the market sooner rather than later because they are a little bit worried about stockouts. And I will tell you, a lot of the big retailers um, have stocked up. And so they have certainly goods on hand. The big question is, are they the right goods? Right. And so right. You know, that's the bigger challenge is, did I get the mix right versus do I have goods available for sale? When you think about it, let's talk, let's peel that back as a supply chain, you know, who knew we'd be talking so much about supply chain this far into the COVID era. It's certainly present on our minds. Uh, Steve and I were sharing a video where we saw, I don't know, 92 boats waiting to be unlocked. I mean, it's still jammed and it feels like the supply chain is one of the top line governors or, or drags on performance. And, you know, big, big retailers uh, have the wherewithal to bring in advanced inventories. You know, they're struggling to find space to put it from when I talk to them. And they're running out of space. As you said, is it the right stuff or not? Uh, at the end of the day, they'll have stuff. It seems like there's a, there's a bifurcation 
here between mid and small and the large folks who can manage through supply chain issues. You know, Home Depot bought a whole boat, for example. And it feels like there'll be winners and losers again in, in this economy and that overall there'll be a bit of a bit of a drag. Retailers tell me they're, they're not even sure what they're going to put on their, their promotional uh, marketing material for Black Friday because they're not sure exactly what they've got or what they do. What are you hearing in, in all this supply chain stuff? Oh, it's very similar. I mean, if you think about where we were in COVID, it was a bifurcated retail environment. The, the stronger got the strong got stronger as we went through that. And so, if you think about the big players, you know they drew down on you know certainly revolving lines of credit, et cetera. They were strong mm-hmm. financially, and so they were able certainly to weather the storm uh, as they went through. And, and we also found the big players that were deemed to be necessary retailers were able to stay open, and so they were able to garner market share from some of the others who weren't there. So, I think their balance sheets were much stronger going into the holiday season um, this year, and I think we're going to see the exact same thing. So, I think you're. What you're hearing is exactly what we're hearing in terms of concerns from you know our client set. You know, let's talk about labor for a bit because uh, if there's two constraints, one is is um, is the product, the second is the labor. Now we're in better shape, I think, as an industry than our friends in restaurant and food service. But you know, when we unpack or, or peel back the layers on the labor shortage issue, at a very high level, it's there's complaints about you know, government programs that are need to be better calculated to not incentivize people to stay home. In other words, don't compete with retailers for the people for government programs. But that feels too simplistic to me. And, and Steve and I talked about that before. How does that feel to you? Is What else is going on, do you think, that is generating labor shortages in, in the retail industry? Well, I think the predictions of moving to a gig economy are alive, even though we don't call it that anymore. So if you think about a number of the delivery services, you know, the uh, the ride hailing services, et cetera, all of those services are pulling temporary labor out of the workforce in droves, right? Even some of the, the, the shopping and delivery services that are shopping on your behalf. And so if you think about the number of folks who have, you know, joined those subscription services in the last year mm. and the number of employees who stepped in there, that's where a lot of the part-time labor is going because they can work their own schedule. It's predictable mm. when they want it to be. And so we don't talk about it much, but that's my view of what's happening from a labor perspective that, that maybe nobody's talking about. Well, and that's, that covers the frontline labor. And that seems to be like, a, a, like a, a, an organic shift, maybe accelerated by COVID, of, well, we, we need less people on the front lines and we need more people delivering stuff to people's doors, you know, with the kind of growth we've seen in e-commerce, which we'll talk about soon. Let's talk about, though, those other roles in retail, because we know frontline is one part. But, you know, if I talk to retailers and, and they're trying to find supply chain, warehouse, uh, IT. Now, it wasn't exactly the halcyon days in the before time. Like, these were roles that were hard to fill for some anyway. But do you, do you see that resolving itself where you can work and hire anywhere in the world now? Do you see that as a, a something that, that could revolutionize and fill those sometimes hard-to-fill spots? Yeah, I think the virtual workplace is going to really drive potentially more people to be available for those types of roles. I think the big challenge, if you look at the the superscalers and the hyperscale tech companies, that's where a lot of talent is gravitating to. I mean, the wages there are up. Um, seems to be more exciting in terms of mm. what those individuals are doing. It makes it really tough to compete. And, you know, the shifting landscape around technology in terms of, you know, what should I insource versus outsource is a real challenge for many retailers today to figure out what that right yeah. mix is. Yeah. So I do think that there are some things that are probably going to work in favor of the retailers to be able to find that talent. 
Now, when you get into warehouse workers, et cetera, to me, that's really interesting and challenging. I think what we might find, and I don't want this to be too scary, but there will be some level of robotics, I think, that yeah, gets yeah. introduced there. It's going to have to yeah. in order to have yeah. the productivity that's needed. Last question about, about your prognostications around uh, around sales. I mean, you know, the, there's, there's a mix of this pent-up demand. There's a mix of this stock case of cash that's just not been spent. You know, against that is this changing mix of people who are not going back to work in an office. I have to feel that that's going to be a drag on the apparel sector. Back to school was great, I think, on both sides of the border. So that kind of lifted, um, you know, college, university, uh, high school apparel sales. But you still see a drag because not enough people are, so to speak, uh, going back to work in the office, which what you, what's your prognostication on that? I mean, is that going to be a reset in the apparel industry more than it is a short term shock? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think we, we may see apparel do okay as we go into the holidays because it, generally it's one of the two top categories every year. So when we talk to consumers, generally apparel's one, gift cards are two, or vice versa. So it may be a little bit light relative to what we've seen in the past, but generally apparel does okay during the holidays. But I do think, mm-hmm. to your point, it's going to be a shift. I think about durable goods, um, you know, things like home gym equipment, those types of mm. things where we really doubled down and made big investments last year. You know, a lot of a lot of spending went toward decorations last year because folks were home for the first time. They yep. didn't travel to families, places, et cetera. So I, mm. I think there's certain categories like that that we're, we're probably going to see moderate. To your point around apparel, you know, I think it's going to do just fine. It may not have a blowout year. It may not fully recover to where it was, to your point. Uh, but generally speaking, I think it's, it's an easy purchase for many people to make. Um, you know, they don't want to give gift cards necessarily. They feel that's too impersonal. But, you know, picking up a tire sweater is pretty easy. Uh, b- before we dig into e-commerce uh, predictions in particular, just kind of going down this path on some of these distortions that are pretty COVID specific, like Michael was talking about, you know, how apparel has been hit. But you also in your forecast touch a bit on uh, the mix between services versus products and and on this topic of these kind of one-time purchases or, or distorted purchases for the home. Um, as we get beyond the holiday forecast, do you have any guidance on how to sort out which of these category dynamics are more permanent as opposed to just, as Michael's kind of getting at that episodic uh, stimulus or, or pullback because of COVID? Yeah, I think what we'll see is is probably as we get midway through next year, we will get to some level of normalcy for what that mix will be. And so a lot of the durables, I think, will come back down. I had many clients that their forecasting model simply didn't work because the mental wisdom would have said that you're going to experience a major slowdown. And suddenly, with the, the stimulus money and the savings from vacation travel, et cetera, they found themselves flush with cash and they decided to to make some of those Purchases maybe they'd put off for four or five years. I think once we get into uh, learning to live essentially with whatever variant of COVID is out there and we kind of settle back in, I would say mid next year in my mind is where we get back to some normalcy. When I talk to my clients, most feel like the first half of uh, you know the next year are going to be just fine. And I think they start to worry about you know next year this time what happens in terms of getting back to some level. So it's hard for me to say category by category, but I do think we'll return to a new level of, of retail, whatever that is you know, mm-hmm. likely in the next six to eight months. Interesting. Well, all right. Well, let's let's shift our thinking to e-commerce. You're talking about, uh, what is it, 11 to 15% in e-commerce, which is lower than we've been seeing. Now, some of that is just hard to kind of comp off 
big growth numbers, I suspect. Let's talk, though, about if you could comment on that, and then let's talk qualitatively about what e-commerce looks like, how the stores are involved. You know, I've seen, and maybe you've seen it as well, ship to, you know, pick up a store, curbside, just fall off to be next to nothing. And retailers are like, oh, my God, I built all this infrastructure and nobody's using it anymore. Is, is, was that just a fleeting moment of e-commerce history? Or is that something that's going to continue? Or, or, so give me your thoughts on those two. Talk about your, the, the increase in the e-commerce and then this, this qualitative, what is the role of the store as you see it in e-commerce going forward? Right. Well, the 11 to 15% was largely based on a pretty big comp last year, right? Mm-hmm. So we expected and we saw that grow dramatically. And so, you know, it's interesting if you go back and look at our forecast and the actuals over the last 10 years, we're in kind of a similar range. I mean, we've seen growth somewhere in the high teens almost every year in e-commerce, but it's building off a bigger and bigger base. And so we're seeing the mix, especially the growth, move more online than, than in store, although in store does okay, obviously, during the holiday season. So, so that was really the reason why that number maybe is lower than maybe some others from an expectation. So I think a lot of that comes back to maybe method of which we use to predict that. In terms of the other things that retailers have put in place, I think we're going to see that continue. So I think folks have looked to get back out. But when we went, I'll reference our back-to-school study that we put out mid-summer. And we asked folks about things like curbside pickup. Are you going to continue to use that buy online and pickup store? And what we Mm -hmm. found is folks, at least from intent perspective, said they would continue to use it. It was actually up a small percentage, I think 3 to 4% uh, when we ran that study. We're asking the same question um, over our consumer study that will be out in about three weeks. I anticipate folks will continue to use that, especially as we get closer Mm -hmm. to holidays, for two reasons. One, I think we had a whole group of folks who had never used buy online to pick up in store. Yeah. We had a whole group who yeah. had never done curbside pickup, and they did it largely for safety last year. Mm-hmm. They got about halfway through the pandemic, and they said, you know what? This is pretty convenient. Right. And they started using it to be able to, to find inventory ahead of time, to essentially reserve yeah. the inventory, run by and pick it up later, et cetera. So I think we're going to find, especially with some supply chain challenges, that folks are going to come back to that. I think maybe and, and, what and we retailers saw, found religion about it as well. In other words, for many retailers, they it was the department of no. There was a lot of reasons not to do it, and even when it was done, it was done okay because the volume wasn't there. And but I think I think you know there is a mix of I, I want to use it, I need to use it, and retailers going, hey, if we do this right, this could really enhance customer experience. That's exactly right. So so I think we're going to see that kind of come back. Maybe we're. You know, we're at a little bit of a lull in terms of the application of that over time. But I, mm-hmm. I think what we've learned in the last, say, 10 years of this, of doing these kinds of surveys, is that price and product were always one, two in retail. So no surprises there. But what we found is a rise of convenience, especially as digital has become easier, more user friendly, and as the role of digital has changed, convenience is now, you know, the third leg of the stool. And I think the more things retailers can do to make it easy and frictionless for me as a consumer and meet me where I am mm-hmm. is exactly where we need to go. Now, it might be a more costly model. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's going to challenge my, certainly my uh, bottom line in doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to continue to see that be taken advantage of by many more consumers. Well, I, I got to follow up on that one with this drive for same day, next day, versus the economics of doing it from store. I mean, you just mentioned profitability. Do you really think that this, you know, this this waterline objective that seems to be set that I want to get it today, I want to get it tomorrow is is where e-commerce is going to settle out or is that just over, you know, over 
we're overthinking it a bit. And consumers don't actually need it the next day and we'll still make choices. And or will retailers say, fine, I'll just ship it from store or come pick up at the store. Where do you, where do you sit on that one? Well, I think what we'll find is there'll be some mix depending on the product. So we ask the question every time we do a survey of shipping, you know, fast versus free. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. we find is about 85% of folks prefer free over fast and fast is defined as, as two days. Yeah. Now there's a, there's kind of a, a curve as you might well imagine for what's acceptable. So to your point, fast is viewed as being same day, next day free to be reasonable is anywhere from three to five days. Now, mm-hmm. most products that probably each of us have shipped to our house, three to five is pretty reasonable. Assuming the customer's but, reasonable, like they say, if I can get it free in the same day, why wouldn't I do that? Yeah, you know, reasonable is doing a lot of work there in that, yeah. in that sense. Is that, is that going to distort economics so much that it's going to tip the boat? I, mean, I think at some point, retailers aren't going to be able to offer that just because I'm, I'm not sure the economics, you know, play themselves out in that way. And if you look at a lot of smaller players, they still have you know, fees for expedited shipping. So it depends on the game you want to play around that. But uh, I think there'll be a handful that that move quickly to using micro-fulfillment for, you know, a portion of their products. But I think there's going to be the extended assortment. Um, I think consumers are not demanding that to come the next day to a large degree. So I think we'll find it'll settle out. Rod, can I ask you uh, perhaps an unfair, somewhat philosophical question on, on e-commerce? It's, it's something that I talked about in my book a little bit, and Michael and I have, have touched on. But do we need a defin- different definition for e-commerce? Because I feel like the first, I don't know, 15 years or so, when we talked about e-commerce, what we meant was a product that was ordered online, yes, but it was sent through the mail from a central distribution center, and stores really weren't involved. And it was largely stuff that, uh, you know, fit into that logistics model. In the last few years, you know, the fulfillment of e-commerce orders has really shifted much more to local home delivery, as we talked about curbside and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and I don't know, maybe it's just maybe it's just my frustration with the media, the way the media depicts it is kind of like, well, as more things shift to online, that means stores are less valuable in some respects. And maybe that was true until the last few years, but actually, so much of the online growth is just ordered online. It's not fulfilled in a in what we commonly think of as e-commerce. So that's kind of a, <laughs> an expansive question. But but I'm just curious if you think we need more nuance or some some different definitions because ultimately, from a consumer convenience standpoint and from a retailer's economic standpoint, it's much more important how it's fulfilled, not how I happen to place the order or research it. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's more of a you know, rather than e-commerce, it's 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 almost more of a digital channel, right? In terms of the interaction with the consumer, and, and what's interesting about that is, from a customer service perspective, it's probably easier for me to have a consistent digital experience than it is even in the store. But but those retailers who have that vast store network, I mean, the big question is how do I make sure I have the goods forward deployed in the right way? And if you look at a number of the micro fulfillment players that are coming online now. I mean, that's the whole play. So I think you're right in terms of calling that out, that, you know, it's not being sent from that, you know, fulfillment DC that is for each is only. Right? So so from that right. perspective, being able to do it locally, I think makes a ton of sense. And you're able to get, you know, better economies from a shipping perspective. I think we're going to see, you know, with these last mile players, it'd be interesting to see which of the traditional retailers perfect that model. Right now, it's, it's largely something where, you know, they're using third parties to be able to do that. But at some point, you know, I could foresee some of the big players being able to, 
to, to do that on their own, you know, with some type of localized milk run, et cetera, that will, you know, allow them to, to be more productive in how they're moving that last mile. My, my follow-up question would be just fundamentally, do you think the big retailers, whether we're talking about Target, Walmart, you know, Best Buy, et cetera, or the grocers, I guess, large grocers, do you think they fundamentally want to use their stores as fulfillment centers and, and will make investments to their stores, or will they likely be biased towards more of these um, micro-fulfillment centers, local home delivery hubs or sortation centers, I guess, Target and Best Buy have been referring to them? Well, I think it's a math equation, right? So, you know, these retailers are really smart in terms of kind of what the, you know, what the rental cost is, how much they're locked in versus what it takes to be able to create something at a much lower, you know, cost from a micro-fulfillment perspective. I think we'll find that there'll be a mix as they go forward in the real sophisticated mm-hmm. ones. The, you know, a lot of the technology in the supply chain right now is about that optimization using AI and other it's computing capabilities to figure out what that right mix is. So I think we're going to find big retail, you know, goes down that path. I think the big thing that we're not talking about is the role of the consumer has changed pretty dramatically. So we have always been a member of the supply chain team, right? Because each of us go out, we pick our products, and bring them home, <laughs> et cetera. Now what That's we're well finding That's is well that we're, we're moving to becoming merchants because we mm-hmm. start by selecting the products online first. So I'm not asking you as a retailer necessarily to merchandise on my behalf. Generally, I'll start that destination myself. And then, you know, the role I'm asking you to play is you take on the supply chain last mile. I'll be the merchant now. So it's really interesting to see that change. Yeah. That's, That's a really a- interesting way to think about it. I hadn't, I hadn't ever quite looked at that <laughs> that way. I love that. I, I have one, one kind of final question, and then I'll pass the, the mic back to Steve to bring us home. What's going to... What's going to stop all this, Rod? Like this growth. I've seen growth upon growth upon growth. I've seen a consumer that's like the Timex watch that keeps on ticking after a beating. Is it inflation? What? I mean, this can't, you know, the numbers just don't always go up and up and up. What, if anything, is going to stop this momentum in retail as you sit back and look at macroeconomic trends? What goes up eventually will come down. What could stop it? Well, I think we tried to stop it last year with the pandemic, right? Yeah. Don't get, I know. That's what we found. It you know, works. Sales, prevent, yeah. sales prevention department. It's a, it's a great question. I think if we end up with a massive bout of inflation, uh, we find that interest rates and the share wallet shifts to, a, um, to, to more things like housing, food, et cetera, I think that probably stops some of the momentum. But if we're able to keep um, the, the inflation in check at a, at a macro level, yeah, I think what happens is the consumers, you know, especially in, you know, kind of the major countries, U.S., Canada, et cetera, I think will continue to, to carry us along. I think if we get into a protracted, uh, you know, recession, et cetera, that would be a different issue. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it has to be something at a macroeconomic perspective that kind of slows the momentum. But, you know, I think a lot of central banks have, have at least for now, figured out how to, you know, moderate the growth and the inflation in a way that, you know, keeps Folks fairly confident. Uh, markets mm. continue to go up, and as long as we can continue to nurse that along, I think that it continues to grow, which is which is pretty neat, you know. At this yeah. point, I think I think if I if I would throw one idea in there, it would be uh, climate change. So there's no vaccine for climate change, long run problem that's becoming a short run issue when your basement's flooded and you know these things start to become a drag on the economy. But who knows, right? So you know. Anyway, thanks for your thanks for your thoughts on that, Steve. Back to you. 
Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there, as they say in the news programs. But this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate the perspectives. Always good to talk to our friends at Deloitte. Uh, uh, Rod, I don't know if you know, but we had Casey Lobaugh on as one of our first guests when we started the podcast a year or so ago. So, uh, which and also when uh, whenever we say bifurcation, Casey and I each get a nickel. So that's that's the. That's our official policy. But but thanks so much. We'll put some links to uh, some of the reports that were referenced. And uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed for a really good holiday season and keep on building that momentum into next year. So thanks so much, Rod, for joining us. And good luck with everything. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you again. And if you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platforms. So you can catch up with all our great interviews. Subscribe so that just automatically shows up. Uh, tell your friends and and also uh, in new insights and new episodes will show up every week. So tell your friends uh, because that will help us uh, share the word, the good the, the the good wisdom. Now be sure and check out <laughs> and be sure and check us out on uh, our new YouTube channel. Not so new anymore. We got a couple episodes up there uh, and just look for remarkable retail. And I'm Steve Dennis. You can check out more of my work at my website stevenpdennis.com or on Forbes or on Twitter. And please check out my second edition of my book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, available just about everywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael Oblon, producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me on LinkedIn, learn about me on melablanc.co. All right, Steve, great episode. Look forward to chatting again next week. Be safe and uh, have a great rest of your day.